So this morning, as we go into Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, this morning we're starting a mini-series within our Romans series, looking at the topics of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So today is part one. And those three topics may sound familiar to you. In John chapter 16, verse 8, when Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit, he said, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. As we go through these next few chapters in the book of Romans, you will notice that the Holy Spirit is not even directly mentioned. Right? It doesn't specifically speak about the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about sin, he's speaking about righteousness, he's speaking about judgment, all of and, and related topics. But in these chapters that we're going through, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is implicit in every one of these passages that deal with these topics. So when we talk about sin, righteousness, judgment, it is really because the Holy Spirit is prevalent or is, is implicitly there in all of those references. And it is the Holy Spirit that is convicting people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment and working in the hearts of people. So when we read these scriptures, remember that the Holy Spirit is at work. So the sermon title is meant to remind us to rely on the Holy Spirit for wisdom to understand these gospel truths and to remind us to ask the Holy Spirit for power to live out these gospel truths. Right? It, without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, we're left to our own devices. We're left to our own strength. And you know, you know that's not going to work. Right? So we rely on the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit. We come to the Holy Spirit and we say, let me understand this. Let me comprehend this and help me to live this out. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right. So with that in mind, let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 32 as part one of our mini-series. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts 
to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Tough passage. For two main reasons. One, every time we read about God's wrath or punishment, it makes us uncomfortable. We're not quite sure how to understand those characteristics of God in light of his unconditional love and his endless mercy. And so that's one thing that sort of, we read this and we go, oh, okay. Second, this passage makes a direct reference to homosexual behavior. And it is uncomfortable to talk about it for fear of offending or for fear of being seen as homophobic or bigoted. So, as we get into these topics, for us to understand God's wrath and deal with love and understanding with all people, I want to establish one foundational truth about who we are as human beings. And this is a statement that we talk about quite often, but may not think about very deep. And that is, human beings are created in the image of God. The Bible describes a creator God. It assumes a creator God. It doesn't speak about human beings having originated in any other way than having been created by God. And it says, this creator God, this is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, so right at the beginning of the word of God that is given to us, right there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, it says, God created mankind or human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 does not spell out in detail 
what the image of God is or what it means for humanity to be created in the image of God. It doesn't give any details. It just makes a statement. But we understand from other scriptures that being in the image of God means that we have a special connection with God and that God intends for all human beings to exhibit a meaningful reflection of who God is and what God does. Right? So let's make sure that we understand that God is saying, when I say to you that you are created in my image, I am establishing or I am saying to you that there's a connection between you and me. And I am intending for you to reflect who I am, what I do. God is the standard. God is that light. God is the source. But each human being is meant to reflect that standard. We don't establish our own standard. We're not having an image of our own. We're meant to reflect the image of God. We're meant to exhibit godly attributes as we reflect God. Now, reason, righteousness, rulership or authority, things of that nature, and relationship are primary examples of human attributes that God has intended to reflect God's own attributes. But we have to be careful that we don't define ourselves in terms of these attributes. We are not in God's image because we have reason, righteousness, rulership, and relationship. It's not because we have this, therefore we say, oh, we are in God's image. We can have reason, righteousness, rulership, and relationship because we've been created by God in God's image. So these attributes flow from God to us. They are flowing to us because we are in God's image. It's God first and then us. It's because of God that we can define ourselves. It's not because we have these attributes that then we can say, this must be what God's image is. Since the Bible is not as specific, since people will say, well, I think this is what God's image means or this is what it implies, we tend to say, oh, I see these particular attributes. So if you have these particular attributes, you must be in God's image. What we have done there is that we are, have created a God in our image. We have said, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is good in us. This must be the image of God. Therefore, we then say, to look around people around us, we say, how much reason, how much of this righteousness, how much rulership, how much relationship do you have? Mm, on a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 4. Okay. On a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 7. Okay. And therefore, you uh, not as much in the image of God. You a little bit better in the image of God. Me, I'm a 9. You know, I'm clearly you know, in the image of God. What do we do? We discriminate against people based on our measure. God never intended for that. God was not saying, you define the attributes and see how it compares to me. 
God was saying, this is who I am. Look at me. Therefore, it defines who you are. We sang about it even this morning. I am who you say I am. Not I am who I say I am. The world and its wisdom, and unfortunately, in many ways, the church has gone to saying, I am who I say I am. So we've got to get this right. So this is where we want to talk about this and understand this. And I want to make a very important point about this. All human beings continue to be in God's image even if they don't exhibit godly attributes. God created all human beings in his image. Even if one of those human beings or all of those human beings don't exhibit godly attributes, they're still created in his image. He did that. So the person who is ignorant of gospel truth or the person who sins or the person who is physically incapacitated or the person who is mentally incapacitated is still in God's image. Nothing less. Now, there is a the Bible speaks about the glory of God. The Bible speaks about the sanctification process that is in us, and we're getting into some of that. We'll go through some of that as we keep going through Romans and so on. So there's all sorts of things where we would say, is, what, what is the maturity of this person? What is the fruit that is being born in this person's life? What is going on in this person? Do they know God? Do they walk in his ways? You can ask all of those questions, but you cannot say, well, this person is not dis, you know, displaying, not exhibiting godly attributes. They are not in the image of God. Now, the reason I want to make this point to you is, throughout history, and particularly in the modern age and such, people have used this concept to discriminate against others. They have discriminated against women. They have discriminated against the mentally handicapped. They have discriminated against those that were not like them. They have discriminated against those that they said, oh, this person is a sinner. And they have used it to say clearly, this person is not in the image of God. They are less than the image of God, the likeness of God. Therefore, we can discriminate against them. This was true of some of the, some of the big names in the Christian faith as such. People who you would recognize by their name wrote things that said women are not in the image of God. Men are in the image of God, but women are not. Books were written like that. And, you know, as it progressed that way, Hitler used some of those things to say, well, these people, these Jews, or these mentally handicapped, physically handicapped other people, they're not in the image of God. They can be put to death. They can be exterminated. You see the implications of these things? The moment you start to speak in those ways, think in those ways, and even subconsciously, ah, that person not as good as me. The moment you start to do that, you have gone against what the Lord actually intends for us. Right? Now, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sinned, and therefore sin became part of our nature, human beings remained in the image of God, but our reason, our right standing, our righteousness, our right standing before God, our authority and dominion over the earth, and our relationships with God and each other were all damaged. All of these things were damaged. 
What God intended for good was damaged because of sin. And every sin-damaged human being must be renewed by God to be restored to him. When people believe in, when they accept Jesus Christ, the old man is put to death. And they put on a new man, a new humanity. The old man that has been corrupted by sin, the old man that has been damaged by sin, is put to death so that we may be raised to new life in Christ Jesus. You see why all these things start to tie together. And in this new humanity, there is no bondage to sin. We can be set free from the bondage of sin so that people are now freed to be who they are, to be who they were intended to be. Or, to put it in other words, God has created people with the intention that they reflect various godly attributes. The fulfillment of that intention of God is now possible in Christ when we are joined with Christ. Once we are joined with Christ, the renewal process is underway. That old man is being put to death or crucified and all that, and the renewal process is underway, and we begin to exhibit godly attributes as we are being transformed into his image. We're being changed as a process. So it is, these, it is possible for these godly attributes to improve considerably in us before we die or before the Lord returns. Right? Every day we should be growing, maturing, going from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from strength to strength. Right? There's a call to that, there's a need for that, there's an opportunity for that. So, and, and, and the renewal of all these godly attributes for those who belong to Jesus will be truly completed, will be consummated when Jesus returns and when we are with him for eternity. Until then, we keep progressing, we keep being sanctified, we keep maturing. When he returns or when we die and we're joined with him, then, of course, we are, all of that is completed, right? There's a completion of that glory, of that glorification of the human beings. Now, so this, not only is this truth about being created in the image of God foundational to understanding the rest of Romans chapter 1, it'll also be relevant as we go through the next few chapters and the other chapters in the book of Romans, and especially when we get to Romans chapter 8, you will see some more references to this, and if, unless you get this idea of the image of God, what it means to be created in the image of God right now, those chapters won't make as much sense. But having this as a foundation and having this as a basic understanding of what it means to be created in God's image, then let us consider this topic of God's wrath. God's wrath is letting us have what we want. I don't know if you've thought about it that way because the statement in the beginning of this passage says the wrath of God is being revealed. And you think, oh, you know, whew, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed. God is sitting there and he says, let me show you my wrath. Right? And he comes storming down. Isn't that what we think of? But 
listen to how, what the Bible says. In our godlessness and wickedness, in our suppression of truth, in our willful ignorance of what God has already revealed through creation, in our disregard of God's attributes, and in our ingratitude to God, human beings made a choice to exchange the glory of God for images that looked like something else. Instead of worshiping God and giving Him the glory, we worship what we desire, what our hearts pursue. Notice what verses 24 and 25 say. Therefore, what's the therefore? Because of what we wanted according to our godlessness and wickedness, God gave them, God gave us over in the sinful desires of our hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of our bodies with one another. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. In his commentary on Romans, Tim Keller writes, uh, there has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance. Which is, our, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we, look to calm, which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it. And so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line. The thing we cannot live without defining and validating everything we do. We we naturally choose or gravitate or go to something that we think can give us meaning, can satisfy us, can answer our questions, calm our fears, realize our hopes. Now keep in mind, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when God said to them, I am all that you need, just as he did to Abraham many, many years later, I am all sufficient for you. God was saying, I am all sufficient for you. What did the devil come and say to them? Maybe not. Do you realize God is keeping something from you? He's not letting you be like him. And if you just did this, you could be like God. He's kept something from you. And so Eve and Adam said, yeah, you know what? There's something else that will help me to be something better. They weren't saying we want to be worse, right? They weren't, they weren't doing that. They were saying we want to be better. And what God has said isn't sufficient. We're going to go do this. And the moment they did that, that became what they worshipped. And they, rec they realized that they, were, they had made a mistake and they very quickly found out the consequence of their mistake. But they made a choice to say, this is what we'll pursue. So here, what Keller is pointing out is that this starts to capture our imagination, our allegiance. It becomes what we put our hopes in. And he goes on to say, Keller goes on to say, that in verse 24, the Greek word used for our sinful desire is epithumia, 
which means over-desires. It's like an over-desire. You desire and you have an over-desire, something in excess. And all controlling drive and longing. It's not even that we're explicitly desiring bad things. It's our over-desire for seemingly good things. Instead of loving God and loving others with the love of God, we now love, we over-desire our own selves, our passions, our interests, our leisure, our appetites, and those who make us happy. We start to over-desire all of that. We have to have those things. Because God is the provider of true satisfaction, when we substitute all these other things for God, when we worship all these other things and not God, we are never satisfied. Because we've gone to the wrong place. God is the one who can give true satisfaction. We've gone somewhere else. It never satisfies. So fame, fortune, food, you know, by the way, I, I was debating whether to put that in there, food. But I thought, you know, it is, no, 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 it's there. You know, fame, fortune, food, speed, thrills, chills. Ooh, you, you know, a good horror movie. Ooh, you know. chills. Ooh, power, prestige, position and pleasure don't really satisfy. We keep wanting more. Again! Let's do it again! And it never satisfies. You know, uh, while I was looking at this, these notes, there was one comment that, made, that was made when if your desire is for your career, the worst thing that can happen to, is, to you is that you get promoted. You know why? Because it reinforces, ooh, this is what I must pursue. So <laughs> the comment, the, the, so the statement was, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you is you get promoted in your career and you keep advancing. But that's true for almost anything, right? We start to pursue something and we get some pleasure out of it. We get some reward from it. We get something that, you know, all our dopamine, our endorphins, everything is going, ooh. We say, ooh, this is good. Chocolate. Yeah? We, we go after it. We pursue it. And we said, this must be what gives pleasure. We were created in God's image. We said we don't want that. We didn't want the healthy vertical relationship with him. And we didn't want the healthy horizontal relationship with each other. We wanted what we want. And God let us have what we desired. God's wrath is not about sending lightning bolts from heaven. There are, of course, very deliberate acts of God that are punishment for sin. We see that throughout the word of God and you know that for sure. There is very deliberate acts of God that are punishment for sin. But when you talk about the revelation of God's wrath, it's not about him sending lightning bolts there, there, you, this country, this person, this, you know, 
blow up your car. You know, this is not what God's doing. In this context, I want you to see that God's wrath, God's wrath is giving us up to ourselves. He's letting us be. Oh, that's dangerous. He's letting us have what we want. He's letting us face the consequences of our own choices. God intended only good for us. And he put in a plan and he put this provision that he said, if you will be under the refuge of my wings, if you will be aligned, spirit, soul, body, under the Holy Spirit, oh, I am with you. I will protect you. You will be in me and I will be in you and nobody can snatch you out of my hand. This is my provision for you. And we said, no, no, no. We don't want to be under this. It's too restrictive. We'll step out. We'll step out and pursue something else. And when we do that, God says, okay, I let you go. And all of a sudden, we are no longer walking in the will of God. We are vulnerable. We make ourselves vulnerable. Which brings us to this point that all sin is going against the image of God. Verses 24 through 27 specifically refer to homosexual behavior being against the created design and nature of God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Right? Paul's not saying something that can be interpreted in one way or do something else with it. He's being very explicit. He says, look, this homosexual behavior is against the created design and nature of God. There has been an argument made that he's not speaking about long-term or good homosexual relations and behavior. He's speaking about promiscuous homosexual behavior. But Paul was fully aware of long-term, stable, loving relationships between same-sex couples since this was common in the Roman world. This is not a new phenomenon. This was common in the Roman world. These kinds of relationships existed. So Paul was very familiar with all of that. And yet he says what he does. So he's not only writing about promiscuous homosexual behavior, but about all such behavior. He's writing about an over-desire that applies to homosexual behavior but applies just as well, just as much, to all sexual behaviors. So understand that. Now we can go into a lot more detail on the topic of homosexual behavior and the differences between homosexual proclivities and homosexual behavior. And we'll talk about, we can certainly do that in the sermon discussion on Wednesday, Q&A session on Saturday. The point is that these are not new topics. They have been referenced in the Bible and debated over the centuries. So we don't have to be hesitant to say, how should we think about this? What should we do? What is the statement that we need to make? But let's be very clear as we consider verses 24 through 28, that in verses 29 through 32, Paul lists a number of other over-desires. And he says, 
These are the things that we are prone to. Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, hatred for God, insolence, arrogance, and boastfulness. We invent ways of doing evil. That's a novel statement, isn't it? We invent ways of doing evil. We disobey parents, lack of understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although we knew God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death or separation from God, we not only continue to do them, but we approve of those that do them. All sin, not merely homosexual behavior, all sin is going against the image of God. On one hand, we tend to either minimize or overlook our own sins and therefore those same sins in others. We get a little angry, so when we see somebody getting angry, we say, ah, everybody does that. We get a little tempted, so we say, and we see that in somebody else, we say, ah, oh, you know, everybody gets tempted. You know, just a little, right? We, we tend to minimize it. We tend to diminish it because we see it in ourselves. Right? And we say, oh, you know. Or we tend not to deal with the sin that we see because we're afraid that we will offend. So that's on one side, one end of this spectrum. On the other hand, we tend to be self-righteous. We say, look at that person. Look at their sin. Look at what they're doing. And we're going to get into this when we get into Romans chapter 2, this whole topic of self-righteousness. And so we're, that's why this is a multi-part mini-series here. You can't talk about this first part and not talk about the second. We can't condemn the person who is in sin and not understand that we may be self-righteous, condemning, judgmental, you know, biased, all those kinds of things. So we have to look at this in that regard. Neither extreme, neither extreme of, of ignoring sin or of condemning sin in these ways, in our own self-righteousness, in our own image, or in our own attributes, is right. Because in both those extremes, we have stepped into what God is intending for. We're saying, we know what's right. We can tell you what the measure of holiness needs to be. This person doesn't measure up, this person, this person does. Neither one is right. And so that means that for us, as children of God, for us to respond and to apply what we're learning in the word here, we have to deal with our over-desires. We deal with our own over-desires and encourage others to deal with their over-desires. Your statement to a person who doesn't know God is not, look at how bad your sin is. Your statement to somebody who doesn't know God is, look at how good God is. And God, who intended something good for us, who created us in his image, who wants us to reflect his glory, God, who will work through us to manifest himself within, in us, God, who is all good in these ways, oh, look at him. Look at him. And he can take any of our sinful desires 
no matter what they may be, and no matter what area they may be going in, and he can bring them and restore them and allow them to be correctly aligned with him, not into all the things of the world, into all the things of the flesh, into all the things of the devil. Because you see, God brings us and calls us and saves us so that we may be in Christ. Because the Bible says that Jesus is the image of God. It doesn't say he's like. It doesn't say he's created in the image of God. He says he, he is the image of God. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. And so when God says, I will take you and rescue you and redeem you and put you in Christ Jesus, you will be one with Christ. All of a sudden now, we don't have to struggle to say, what do I need to know about the image of God? What do I, how should I understand this? What attribute do I have? What is my self-assessment? We are able to say, if I am in Christ and he is in me, I have all things. I am able to be transformed into his image. I am conformed. I am being formed in the image of Christ, which is the image of God. That's the power that we have. We have understood some of this as we studied Luke and Acts, and we'll continue to learn more of this as we go through Romans. But this morning, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you, that as we read through these passages, as we confront these topics about sin, you know, and we're go very quickly we're going to get into the verse that says, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, everybody knows that verse that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is image words, image language. God had a certain standard. God has a certain image. God has certain, something that he's asking us, that he intends for us to be in, to live up to. And what the Bible is saying is, when we fall short of that, we sin. It's not about saying, oh, this sin, that sin, this much sin, this much, you know, this less sin. No, it's saying all of us fall short of the glory of God. When you deal with that next sinner, maybe this week, maybe in your own home, maybe when you look in the mirror, don't immediately start to say, you sinner. Start to understand what the Lord has called us to. Why he says, look, you are where you are because I have let you go. Maybe, maybe one area of your life, maybe not all of your life, but something that you fought for and you said, I want to do this, God. I want to do this. I want to go after this. Because you decided that is what is good. And the Lord says, I let you go. That we would come to the Lord and say, Lord God, I would need you to help me to deal with my over desires. This week I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you, ask the Lord to show you what area in your life are you 
over-desiring in. It could be something big. It could be something very, very dangerous. It could be something that is catastrophic for your marriage or for your work or for your parenting or whatever it may be. It could be some secret sin that if, as it is found out, it is going to have a significant impact. Or it could be something very minor, seemingly benign, whatever it may be. What is an area in your life where you, there's an over-desire? Where you've gone past or gone into it in such a way that you, that starts to become your obsession. Ask the Lord to reveal it. Ask the Lord to help you to deal with it. So that you may crucify the flesh, the old man, and live in this new man. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that your word is powerful for us. It is, Lord, it gives us an imperative, a call to action. So we don't want to read these words and, Lord, simply say, well, that's for somebody else. That's for the worse sinner than me. Lord God, it is for us, individually, personally. And we ask you, Lord, that we, each one of us, will pay attention to what the Holy Spirit would speak to us this week. That, Lord, any area in our life where we have been living in an over-desire, in our sinful desires, that you would reveal that and you would cause us, Lord, to run to you, to run to you, our tower, our refuge, our strength, and to be hid in you, to be under your protection, to be covered over, Lord, with your robes of righteousness. Lord, to be under the blood of Jesus, even as we sang this morning, that, Lord, we would come there. We would be safe and secure in that provision of God. Grant us grace for that, Lord. Father, send us out with your blessing this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. We ask all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.